0: So, in December of 2012, um, a woman passed away by the name of Marion Stokes. She was, I think, about 82, 83 years old. Um, I believe she passed away from a respiratory disease of some sort. Um, And none of you probably were aware of this, and I know I wouldn't be, except for one thing about Marion Stokes. That I, I heard about after her passing. When she died, she left quite a bit of stuff behind. She was quite the, the avid collector. Um, but when she passed away, one of her, her children contacted uh, uh, someone from. A group called the Internet Archive. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Archive.org is, is their website. They collect all sorts of, you know, public domain stuff, make it available. A, a lot of, you know, they archive a lot of media. They have something called the, the Interba- Internet Wayback Machine, um, where you can go and you can see what different, you know, things from the Internet, different websites, looked like at different points in the path. They just, they, I mean, it's the Internet Archive. They just archive everything that they can get their hands on, and they try and make it available. Available for researchers and, and things like that. And so one of the, the children of Marion Stokes got in touch with the Internet Archive and said, um, We've got something for you. We can't really find anyone else who's interested in this, but we thought you might be. And what they were were videotapes. Um, not a couple of boxes of videotapes, more like four large shipping containers of videotapes. Um, Over 140,000 videotapes. You see, you can think of, and this isn't, I'm not going back to that lesson I did about people hoarding years ago, but um, (laughs) but, but it reminded me of this quite a bit. You see, for about 35 years, Marion Stokes recorded cable news. All of it. (laughs) She, you know, for, you know, she was... A lot of the typical, you know, things that you... uh Come, come across a lot when you think of hoarding behavior. She was a, a child of the Depression, and so that living in, in a time of such scarcity, she would see the value of, of preserving and keeping things. But she was also a, a former librarian, um, and she had worked briefly in television as a producer. So when she saw these things, she, she was a very natural archivist. And, and when she saw what was happening, all the things that were being covered, she knew someone needs to be recording this. This information just doesn't need to be lost. Um, there are important things happening in the world that are being presented here. That if no one's keeping track of this, one day it's just all going to be gone and forgotten. Now, this project, the Internet Archive, they were happy to take it on. I mean, it dwarfed greatly um, their own projects that they had done trying to archive, you know, TV news and make a searchable database for research and all this. And you know, granted, it's going to take them a while to go through. You know, 140,000 tapes, one at a time, you know, encoding them, you know, getting the closed captioning, searchable, and, and all of this stuff. But it was, it was, for them, they saw it as a very valuable resource. There's a lot more I could tell you about Marian Stokes and this story, and it's really interesting what's being done with this material. But that's really not what I think is the most interesting part of the story. It's in listening to her kids about what it was like to live in a house where 24 hours a day things were being recorded the tales of how their life started to revolve around 6 hour blocks of time the length of a, either a betamax or vhs video cassette depending on the era how uh, the stories that they tell of being out at a restaurant, you know, finishing a meal, and suddenly an alarm goes off and they realize they gotta get out of there. And so hurriedly finishing up again, you know, mom getting all the kids rushing to the car, dad going and paying the bill as they run out the door to get in home in time to change the tapes. And then later in life, you know, said so that just everything revolved around that as her children grew up, and especially as she began to get older, other family and friends and different caretakers that would come in and help her out at home, how they would get pulled in to this process. They would get pulled into this system of making sure that anywhere between, you know, depending on the year, between five and eight different video cassette recorders, and monitors to make sure that all the tapes were being changed out, everything was being recorded, and how everything in their lives started to revolve around those six-hour blocks of time. Everything in their lives was organized around, we've got to record the news. Now, setting aside what value that may have or may not have, how strange you may think that that is you know, and even if we do look at those researchers and, and, you know, librarians somewhere way down the line that will look back at this archive and say, wow, I'm glad somebody was doing this because this is now a valuable resource. Regardless of how you think about what was being done, you have to admit, it's kind of a strange way to live. It's kind of a strange way to organize your life around these six-hour blocks of times. But as I was listening to a story about this and more about the family and doing a little more research and reading about the story, as strange as I thought it was, the more I started to think to myself, well, don't we allow different outside forces, strange or not, to start to organize and shape how we structure our lives? Now, I've found this slide. I just, it made me laugh, so I had to, had to put it in there. Um, no matter how organized or disorganized you think you are, no matter how organized or disorganized you may feel your life is, whether you realize it or not, your life is organized around something. For that family, it was those tapes, it was those recordings. But all of us have something that we're organizing our lives around. Sometimes we might not even be consciously aware of what is shaping and organizing our lives because. Well, it just seems normal. It just becomes such background noise, and we don't even realize that we're structuring our lives around it. Or, you know, maybe we don't notice it because, well, it's just necessary, and it's the only thing that we can do. There are times, admittedly, when urgency speaks the loudest. You know, when there's a big project at work that's got to be done by the deadline, When you're getting to the end of a semester with its looming papers and finals that you absolutely have to be prepared for and you're just consumed by it. There's a new baby in the house. And, well, yeah, there's a new baby in that. There's nothing else you can do. That that is what everything will revolve around. Or on the other end of that spectrum, if someone, yourself or a loved one, is dealing with a serious illness or injury, you can't help but have that organize and shape the way your life looks like from day to day. But even in the other times, in the times when we don't have the urgent, we need a center. We need a place to move back to, or else we're very likely to move from one emergency to the next, one urgent thing to the next, from crisis to crisis, never holding on to one unified organizing principle for our lives one great theme for our life story to put it another way we all need that thing that we come back to yes there are moments of distraction moments where we've just got to deal with something here and now but when the crisis is over when that moment is past where do we come back to where do we settle when things calm back down again what's the fundamental organizing principle of your life When you start each day, how do you answer that question, Who am I? Who am I going to be today? What am I all about? What sets the agenda? Who is going to reign supreme in my world on this day? Now see, for a first century Christian, there was really something very radical at the core of the gospel, especially in their culture. And it was one very bold statement that we've been singing a lot about today. That Jesus is Lord. And specifically in their culture, the really bold and radical claim that these first Christians were making was that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That was a bold thing to say. That was a radical thing to say. That was even a dangerous thing to say. You see, these titles that we so casually and so just, we're so relaxed about the way we give that title of Lord and Savior to Jesus. It just seems so normal, so natural. It's all that we've ever known. And it's easy for us to forget that for a first century Christian living in the Roman Empire, we well, see the things that they were hearing that would sound normal to their ears is Caesar is Lord and Savior. And to say something different was a very dangerous ground to tread on. And it's into this context, it's into that world, that really it shows up in almost all of Paul's letters, but I love the way it is just so boldly asserted in Colossians in the reading that we had before. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's dangerous language right there. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. In everything, Jesus is Lord. And Caesar is not. And just in case you, know, you didn't hear that, clearly, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities... All things have been created for him and through him. No matter what it is, no matter what ruler, what what emperor, what throne, what crown may sit on someone's head. Well, guess what? Jesus is above that. Jesus comes before that. He made it and it belongs to him. That was a very different way of looking at how to organize your life. A, different, a very, very different framework for a first century Christian to structure their lives around. A citizen of the kingdom is no longer subject to the world's way of doing things. The political imperatives are secondary because Jesus is Lord. The economic imperatives, well, they're secondary because Jesus is Lord. The social imperatives, as important as they may be, well, they're secondary because Jesus is Is Lord. Absolutely everything is reshaped by the fundamental world shaking truth, as dangerous and as radical as it has seemed in the past and it may seem today, that Jesus is Lord. Not whatever else you might think deserves that position. We see as Western culture, especially, but really just the history of the world in general, as it's progressed our identities, in a lot of ways, have become smaller. In the first century, thinking in terms of the empire was a very natural thing to do, because, well, that was pretty much everything as far as they were concerned. But our worlds have gotten, as, as the world has gotten smaller, in a lot of ways, our identities have gotten smaller too. Over time, we start to think of ourselves less in terms of the nation, and it, it shrinks down a little bit to, to the community. And then it shrinks a little further down to the family being what we organize around. And then eventually to where I think most of our culture finds itself today, that it's the self. It all comes down to me. And so today, that radical core expresses itself in a slightly different but familiar way. And so one of the most radical implications of the gospel today is Jesus is Lord, I am am not whatever I deem to be worthy or valuable whatever priorities I may see in my own life whatever I think might be the most important the most valuable the most urgent well it can never be king it can never be Lord because Jesus is Lord I am not Now, for our lives to revolve around something other than the dominant lords of our present-day realm, honestly, that's just weird. A lot of people are going to say, okay, you know, your, your little religion and your, your spiritual life as you compartmentalize it away there. Well, that's, that's fine. That's good. You can, you can do that. But, you know, seriously, you know, hail Caesar. You know, they're important things. They're things that we all agree upon as a culture that these are the things that we all say are important. So, you know, your, your religious life and your beliefs, those are fine. But hail Caesar, whatever the Caesar of the day happens to be. See, the world is filled with so many little empires to organize our lives around that for us to say, well, you know, the custom-built empire where I think that I'm Caesar, (laughs) you know, all the socially acceptable priorities that we can find today, all the different kings that may seem to be ruling in this world today, for us to say Jesus is Lord, that's one thing. But to say that Jesus is Lord and those things aren't, it's treading on dangerous ground again. Almost as dangerous as it was for those first century Christians to say that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is. It can be just as dangerous, and it can place us at such odds with the world around us to say, Jesus is Lord, and you're not, and I'm not. And whatever you think is most important right now, it will never be important, more important, than the reign of Christ. We can never organize our lives around something smaller than Jesus. And guess what? That includes everything. (laughs) Everything that is beneath him. And guess what? He is above all things. Now, as I said before, there are going to be those moments of urgency. There are going to be those moments where we simply have to deal with what's been set before us. And so many times, even those things are part of what God has given us to be good stewards of. Those are within the will of God. Those are within the scope of Jesus being Lord. And in fact, I would say we're much better prepared to handle those things if we're handling not in the, in the, the context of, okay, well, this is a thing that I've got to do right now. And so I'm just going to do it and get it done with. But instead we say, Jesus is Lord and he has given me this task. The crisis looks a little bit different when Jesus is Lord and he is reigning even in the difficult situation, even in the urgent situation. And then when all that calms down, when we come back to that calm place, we come back to that center, we really find that we haven't moved. We're still at that center organizing principle of our lives that Jesus is Lord. And whatever else comes our way, all has to fit under that framework. But there are so many empires today. There are so many rulers fighting for that attention. And I think that what we need is a glorious revolution. I asked Christy last night that when I say the term "glorious revolution," does that like mean anything to you? And she said, like, I feel like it should. It sounds familiar. Um, <laughs> and it was one of those things. I don't know why it is. Like, sometimes you sometimes just think back, and there are like certain things that just really stick. From you know, actually, it's my sophomore year of high school and studying with a group for our our uh, our world history final. The second semester of, of my, of my sophomore year of high school. For some reason, us talking about me and a few of my friends who were sent there, this, I don't know why, this isn't like the most significant thing, especially for us Americans. It was some British thing, so who cares, right? Um, but, but for some reason, it is always stuck in my head. Now, I don't want to get into like a whole big thing and get all history nerd about it. It's very easy for me to do. But if you're not familiar with what's now called the Glorious Revolution, um, like 1688, um, King James II, not the King James that we think of when we think King James, but King James II was on the throne. And um, the husband um, of of his daughter Mary, uh, William of Orange, actually will later be known as William III, um, he comes across the English Channel uh, with the Dutch fleet um, to come take the throne, not because it was necessarily his to take, but because he was invited. Very powerful members of Parliament, even of opposing parties, kind of got together and said, they were, I'm not going to get into all the You know, details of all this, but due to some fears about, you know, certain religious things and Catholicism and and Protestantism and just all the different things going on there, they were kind of worried about what was about to happen with the next heir to the throne. And so they said, Hey, William, why don't you just come over here, bring the fleet with you? That's what this is a a painting of or etching of. Um, you, You cross, you bring the Dutch fleet with you, and we've got your back. And so sometimes this is called the bloodless revolution. Because there wasn't some big civil war. There were some minor skirmishes when they first got there. But basically, a new king was invited. He came across. The old king said, Okay then, I guess I'm in trouble. And he didn't really put out much of a fight. He realized he didn't have the political might. He didn't have the strength to take on that king that had been invited. Now I say they call this the bloodless revolution, even though a little bit of blood was shed. But you see, I think we need that kind of glorious revolution. Because see, in Jesus' revolution, the only blood shed, well, it was his own. He shed his own blood, he, and he has won the battle. He's more than earned his rightful place as your king, but the question remains, are you going to invite him over? The thing that made the Glorious Revolution so glorious was that it was done not with just some show of force, but with an invitation. Jesus is Lord over everything. But the question still to you is that, are you going to invite him to come be your king? Because see, he's not going to force his way in. He's earned the right to. He is king over all things, whether you acknowledge it or not. But he's waiting for your invitation to be your king. Will you invite him in? And when you invite him in, will you really mean it? We've sung so many songs today. I was, I was really very aware of the text of all the songs we sung today as I, um, put in the computer earlier this week and, and I have the, the printout of all it, so I can keep up with the slides as I'm advancing them. And so I'm really paying attention, uh, you know, especially to the words today. And I was, as I was going through, I was like, wow, if we meant all the words to all these songs we sang, this sermon would be very redundant and unnecessary. If we really meant all of the things that come along with, Jesus is Lord for me. I have invited him to be king, not just of everything in the abstract, but I will recognize him as king personally. If we really mean all of that and all that that implies, with all that his lordship will mean in our lives, what a difference it could make. What a difference it will make. I hope that you've done that. I hope that you've said, okay, I'm ready for you to come and take the throne that is yours in my life. And if you've let some other kings get in the way, have a little glorious revolution of your own, invite the true king back. If you've never invited him in for the first time, he's waiting, he's ready. He's a worthy successor to whoever is sitting on your throne. Whatever it is that we can do today to help you take that step, to help invite him in to your life, we'd love to do that for you. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning to help you along your way, please come and let us know while we stand and while we sing.